Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, the Prime Minister is pressed on his government's timeline for stricter gun control. We're now looking at uh, the right way and the right moment to bring it forward. The tragedy in Nova Scotia simply uh, reinforces and underlines how important it is uh, for us to continue to move forward on strengthening gun control in this country. Uh, and we will do that uh, at uh, the appropriate time. Canada's top doctor says the path forward in the pandemic remains uncertain. I think for sure, crowded conditions, mass gatherings is not in any of our near future. I think that is sort of pretty evident. Um, as to whether certain activity can be done safely, that needs further assessment. And what is the federal government doing to help the provinces in the fight against the coronavirus? Certainly at the federal level, we have uh, tools that we can support the provinces and territories with, and we have been, and namely that's financial resources, that's product, uh, and in this case in testing, it's approval of new testing capacities, for example, and or the equipment that goes along to support that testing. It's Wednesday, April 22nd. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by author and op-ed columnist for the Chronicle Herald, Dan Legere. Good morning, Dan. Hi, Mark. You're very close to the area in Nova Scotia where the mass shooting occurred, where part of the mass shooting occurred on the weekend. And I know this has hit Nova Scotians very hard. All Canadians are, are grieving uh, as a result of this deadly, deadly incident. Uh, but there are questions that are arising as well. First of all, it's a very difficult time for everyone because the normal things that people would do in response to a, to a, a horrible, violent incident like this, they can't do uh, because of the coronavirus. But there are also questions being asked about the role of the RCMP and why they didn't say more in the early hours of this, why they didn't warn people more effectively that somebody posing as an RCMP officer, was traveling around and, uh, and shooting people. That is emerging as a major issue, at least in, in this part of the country, Mark, and, and you're right. We've owned a house just a, a few kilometers up the road from where all this took place for over 30 years, and uh, I know the area well. And, uh, you know, it, it's a warren of back roads and lumber roads and things like that, uh, and country farm roads. Um, and, uh, you know, it did take a long time for the RCMP to tell people that the suspect had a what appeared to be a police car and, and was dressed in, in, in a police uniform. Um, and, in fact, they were the Mounties never did ask the province whether they could get access to the, uh, the emergency alert system, which, which bings everybody's phones. And uh, that system was never used. So, at, at, you know, it took quite a long time uh, before people realized that this guy appeared to be a, was, was posing as a policeman. And as a result, or it appears as a result of that delay, um, several of the people were shot. And, and some people were just literally pulled over on the road by what appeared to be a Mountie vehicle. And that was the last thing that, uh, they ever saw. So... I mean, there's so much we don't know about this, Mark. There's the months and months and months of investigation, uh, but there are already victims' families saying, why were we not given better information when we really needed it? And I'm sure there will be more to come on that, but in the meantime, obviously, it's very difficult for everyone. You can't go out and hug someone. Uh, funerals can't take place, memorial services, uh, the normal things that would happen after a crisis like this, right? 
Yeah, it's absolutely a major part of it. Uh, you know, I sorted out yesterday just to go to the drugstore to pick up uh, some needed things. Just everybody is hanging their heads. It's it's very very unusual, and and people are frustrated. Um, and the families uh, must be going through hell over this. But like you said, the community would have found ways to get together and support each other and support the uh, victims' families. And that is harder to do now, given the COVID-19 restrictions that we're all living under. All right, let's talk more about the government's response to the coronavirus crisis. Teresa Tam, the public officer of health, is saying that uh, that it's still not clear how we're going to emerge from this. Uh, Patty Haidu, the health minister, has been talking about assistance for the provinces. There's an ongoing discussion about that. Uh, there were two planes that returned from China without the medical supplies that they went there for. So there are a lot of moving pieces to this day by day. Uh, what's your sense of where we stand and, and where we're going with this? Well, I, I think there's some of the experts are suggesting that the curve may be flattening. I, I, I think there's something to that. Um, but you're right. It, it does seem unclear how all this is going to emerge. And frankly, this is, I think, demonstrating a, a real gap uh, in the efficiency and effectiveness of our political institutions. I mean, I think that most uh, provinces and the federal government have done the right thing in uh, giving the experts uh, the lead on this and following their advice as best they can. Um, But at the same time, there's that intersection between, you know, the political dimension of this and the sort of technology or technocratic uh, dimension that is still pretty unclear. And uh, I think it's really going to become crucial when the questions arise about how to reopen the economy. I mean, things are just straining uh, at the point of almost cracking. And at some juncture, um, the economy does have to restart and people have to get back to work. Um, And I don't know. I mean, and someone is going to have to come up with a clear plan. It can't be, gee, I don't know when it's not clear. That's not good enough. Uh, This is too much. There's too much on the line. And somehow or other, that plan has to be uh, organized, decided on and carried out. And and that's really uh, uh, the biggest challenge for the federal government, I think, going forward. Yeah, and I, I think at a certain point it has to be communicated, and uh, and I think the other theme that I hear people talking about is that uh, that while in the early days of this crisis, it it made sense to defer to public health officials, that at a certain point uh, their advice has to be balanced against other considerations, like as you just said, the economy, right? That that there are because yeah, there are right, there are health know, impacts it, from the economy suffering as well, right? So yes, of course there are, but you know the here's. Here's the, the danger for, you know, put yourself in the shoes of, of a provincial premier or, or the prime minister. I mean, if you say, OK, fine, absolutely, the, the economy has to get restarted and all that. But then if there's some kind of horrible second wave, people are going to forget about how badly they wanted the economy started up. And they're only going to remember the fact that uh, people are dying around them. So it's, it's, you know, there has to be a way of managing a return to normalcy economically and socially while also minimizing the risks, not eliminating, because eliminating the risks I don't think is going to be possible in this environment, but minimizing them to the point that the whole recovery isn't thrown into reverse just as it it starts to get going. So it's a real fine line, and it's really testing 
uh, I think, the limits of jurisdictions and, and, the, uh, and the powers of all the levels of government. Let's touch on one other story, Dan, and that is the fact that uh, yesterday the federal government announced it's abandoning its Supreme Court appeal of several lower court decisions on solitary confinement that effectively rendered it unconstitutional and put a hard cap on the number of days someone could spend in solitary confinement. This is a a five-year legal battle that has now come to an end with the government, the federal government, effectively giving up. What do you think is behind this? Well, uh, you know, I am not a legal expert, so I don't know if the federal lawyers just decided they couldn't win the case after doggedly pursuing it for all these years. Um, uh, I don't think that they do all that much just because it's, you know, quote-unquote, the right thing to do. Uh, There had to be some hard and, uh, you know, hard legal rational reason uh, to back down from this, but they are stepping aside from a long-standing practice, which is you know, it's cruel. It's inhuman to lock people away in a little room for years and years and years. Uh, granted, people do have to be separated for the protection of uh, convicts that are held in custody. But at the same time, um, using it as a way of just kind of, you know, brutalizing these people, uh, you know, I, I don't think, you know, a lot of Canadians support that idea either. Some obviously would. Um, and, and there are, are still a lot of people who believe that criminals, you know, require harsh treatment. But at the same time, I think the sort of trend in Canadian law and in the Charter uh, and in Canada, you know, public policy-wise over the years has been to try to treat criminals uh, humanely, and it is not humane uh, to lock people up to the point where they kill themselves or go absolutely mad being locked away for all that time. So... Um, it is interesting. I'll be interested uh, interested to hear, um, you know, the explanation, if they give one, from the Federal Department of Justice about why, you know, something that seemed so important, uh, you know, a few months ago now just seems like, well, it isn't worth fighting anymore. So uh, I hope they do offer us an explanation. I think the public is uh, is owed one. All right, Dan, great to have your thoughts. And uh, once again, everyone's thinking about the people of Nova Scotia. Thank you for your time today. Thanks, Mark. That's Dan Legere, author and op-ed columnist for The Chronicle Herald. I believe that if members of Parliament can go to the grocery store, uh, they can come inside a chamber that's built for 338 people and ensure that programs and services that are being designed for Canadians are the, are, are, are the best they possibly can be. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the Globe and Mail, Andrew Coyne argues the coronavirus crisis will prove Parliament's disposability. Coyne writes, Monday's sitting was only the third since March 13th, and no one seems to miss it. I suggest a fundamental reason for that is an underlying lack of belief in Parliament's necessity as a single deliberative body. The question, usually left unspoken, is worth answering. Why should Parliament have to actually meet in person at any time, never mind now? No one believes the government should be immune from scrutiny or that its critics should be prevented from speaking. But why, in this age of technological wonders, must they be assembled in the same room? In an editorial, the Toronto Star argues we are fighting two pandemics, and only one seems to be under control. The Star writes, When governments told people to stay home, stop the spread, and flatten the curve, Canadians did just that. And it's working. But another pandemic is happening inside long-term care homes, homeless shelters, prisons, and other group settings where people live in close quarters. Those numbers are growing, and tragically, more deaths will follow. 
What's happening inside long-term care and other group settings is up to government to solve. In National Magazine, Justin Ling asks how far our system should go in freeing inmates in light of the coronavirus. Ling writes, COVID-19 has revealed how unprepared our legal institutions are for the pandemic. One of the more immediate concerns is what to do with offenders and those waiting to stand trial. In 20 cases that have been published online, the courts have cited the threat of the coronavirus as a release to grant bail, reduce a prison sentence, or grant release about half the time. On the other side, Crown prosecutors have argued that giving COVID-19 too much weight in sentencing could amount to a get-out-of-jail-free card. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The Prime Minister will give his daily news conference on the coronavirus at 11.15 Eastern Time. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Wednesday, April 22nd. Tune in to CPAC and CPAC.ca throughout the day today for coverage of the coronavirus crisis. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.